0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Did you know that in 1927, when the first sort of set of federal laws were codified and put together, that they all fit in one reasonably sized book? It was just one volume, and it was really actually reasonably sized. And now, a little less than 100 years later, There's absolutely no way that that could happen. Google will tell you that we have somewhere in the range, somewhere underneath of about 50,000 federal laws. So that leaves the the local stuff aside completely, right? 50,000 federal laws. And if you do a little more digging, you'll find out fairly quickly that there are 5,000 criminal federal laws. And related to that, there's somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 regulations that explain those 5,000 federal critical laws. 100,000 and 300,000 regulations about 5,000 laws. So imagine how many regulations we have about the upwards close to like 50,000 federal laws. Surely that doesn't all fit in one book anymore. Why do we do that, do you think? Is it, is it truly that human behavior is so diverse that we really have to have some law, some regulation for every situation? Is it that there's some kind of aberration to every law, every situation? We need exceptions and adaptability. Is it because we, on some level, like to be hemmed in or because we like to know that we can hem in other people? Why do we do that? We take something that's fairly simple and we complicate it and we talk about it over and over and over again and we expand on it which one of us doesn't remember, and maybe it was you, maybe it wasn't, the kid on the, on the recess playground field who was the first one to run to the teacher when someone broke the rules and wasn't playing fair? Even as adults, we have a sort of inherent love of fairness and of justice. We like to know that everyone else is being held to the same standard that we are. And so we get a little hung up on rules and on laws, sort of how that affects us and how that affects someone else. And the good news is that we're not unique in that, and it's been happening for thousands of years. In fact, the people of Israel did much the same thing and continue, actually, to do much the same thing. How many commandments were there, do you remember, when Moses came down the mountain? Just ten, right? Just ten commandments. And then if you look through Hebrew scriptures, there are rules and rituals and laws everywhere. I mean, Leviticus is just chock full of them. And then if you're interested, and it's fascinating, if you read the Talmud, there's generations of rabbis arguing about laws across time and space, interpreting the law in different situations, in odd, really, in every situation you can think of. And they do that because of a deep love for the law, which I have so much respect for, and comes out of a sense that the law was a gift from God. But just like human nature, Ten Commandments becomes piles and piles and piles of rules and regulations. The law was intended to be fairly simple, I think, and a gift from God. God first calls the people together, creates a, a people, says, You are my beloved, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then, after naming them and calling them and forming them and freeing them, then comes the law. The law was intended to be a gift to keep the people of God together, to give them a sound and stable way to live together, to build justice among them, to inspire kindness and mercy. It was a gift that intentionally focused us not on our own individual needs, but on the needs of the whole community and on the needs of our neighbor. It was very willing to switch out our individual human desires for the good of the common whole. The idea that there was this people living in the world that God had called and created, and it was hard to continue to be God's people because the world around them was so difficult and dangerous. And so they needed the law to guide them, to teach them, to lead them into blessing which is what the text from Deuteronomy is referring to this morning. I put before you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now, as Christians, we relate to the law a little bit differently, but the story is fundamentally the same. In baptism, we believe that God names us, claims us, calls us, frees us, and then invites us into relationship, into covenant not just with God, but with the whole community. And that covenant... That relationship, if it's real, then leads to some kind of transformation in our own lives. It invites us to look seriously at Jesus, at his life, and to try to live the way that he lives, to learn how to love the way that he does. The Apostle Paul is very quick to tell us that we are not prisoners to the law anymore, and that our feelings about the law are sort of different. Jesus saves us, not our actions not our accumulation of good deeds. It's Jesus on the cross who redeems us. But if we really believe in him and we want to follow him, then there becomes this sort of deep desire within us to live by the law anyway. The law, again, that focuses us on the needs of the community as a whole and the needs of our neighbor ahead of our own. The invitation of this sort of way of life is to learn how to put the needs of the whole ahead of our own. And it was intended to be a gift, to be a, a way for all people to live together. Now, the tricky part about that is that then we have gospels like this morning, which should convict all of us on some level. And it's important to remember that elsewhere Jesus is very quick to tell us that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Meaning that we see his life, that life for which we are striving, as kind of the culmination of the law, the endpoint of the law, the literal image incarnation of what it means to live well and faithfully and honorably. And so this is where it gets a little tricky, because then we have to try, if we love him, to learn how to live like that which means we have to contend with some of the more difficult things he says. So this passage this morning from the Gospel is a piece of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a couple of big sort of chunks to it. And in the first piece, he seems to be telling us that what happens to us internally is just as important as how we act and what we do with it. Meaning, if you don't act on your anger, that's good, but if you're walking around raging inside, you still have a problem. And if you have a problem, you're supposed to go and reconcile with your spouse, parent, child, friend, uncle, sibling, whoever it is. Because the life of the whole community suffers when we are against each other. The life of the whole community hurts when we aren't able to love each other. And that's the same advice about the settling on the way to court. If someone's accused you of something, and by the way, the text doesn't seem to care whether you're guilty of it or not, doesn't seem to care whether you're innocent or not. The implication still is that you're supposed to come to a settlement, to reconciliation, to a place of peace, for the sake of the whole community. (coughs) And then we get these two pieces that are really about women and about their place in society, and in order to understand that, we have to remember that contextually, these women were one of the most marginalized groups in the ancient world. Not the only one, to be sure, but one of them. They had, particularly Jewish women at the time, they had no power, they had no rights, they had no ability to own property. Their entire life was dependent on the man that they married or on their father. And only when all those men were gone did they actually have a little bit of autonomy. So what Jesus is trying to do here is put a little bit of structure around them to invite society to see them as whole people, not as objects, not as property, not as a means to an end, but as whole people made in the image of God deserving of dignity and respect. And in doing so, because it's easy to just think that he's inviting the women to that, in doing so, what he's inviting is the whole community to live upright, honorable, faithful lives where we don't treat other people as objects or as a means to an end because they too are God's beloved. And that's actually a very good segue into the last part, which is fundamentally about faithfulness. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If you say that you're a Christian, live that way. If you say that you love Jesus, you're responsible for what you think and for what you do. If you say you're going to walk down this road, then do it in every choice you make, all the way across the board, not just sometimes when it's convenient, but all the time. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. difference of opinion, the sort of difference of interpretation of the law for us, that we don't have 5,000 or 50,000. We just have one, one law, one regulation, one rule, and it is love. And that love that we see in Jesus, that we hear about in this text, is love sort of pushed to the extreme. It's the end of love, it's the all the way to the reaches, as far as you can imagine, of love, always never just sort of half-baked, never halfway, always the extreme, always more than you expect. In this passage, he intensifies the law. He simplifies it, but he intensifies it. You've heard it said that X, but I say to you that Y, and the Y is a much higher bar. It's a much more extreme version of the love to which we're called. So there's two pressing questions I think, in this gospel. And the first is to consider if Jesus were here now, if it were the, the sermon on the, on the green in the center of town, instead of the sermon on the mount, who are the people that are oppressed that he would want us to put structure around? Who are the people that we see as a means to an end? Who are the people that we fail to see and honor as whole people? What would he say to us about it? Would it be about racial justice? Would it be about immigration? Would it be about economic privilege and status? Who are the people who we don't honor as whole people? And what kind of structure would he ask us to put around them so that our whole society is upright and honorable? And how are you in your own life Allowing this love that is extreme to change you? How are you allowing it to change all of your decisions? All of the pieces and sort of far distant parts of your life? All your relationships? Can you feel the extreme at the end? Jesus, in his life with us, heals people. He walks around inviting people back into relationship, not only with him, with God, and with community, but with each other. He makes more room at the table. He performs miracles that always bring people back to God and to each other. And this is the work that he calls us to, to figure out how to love the way that he does. This is the law, not 5,000, not 50,000, just one. One word. How does it change you? Who are you called to love? And how do we choose the common good? Amen.